Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Yes, today's show should have gone up yesterday, but I was unwell, so it's gone up today. This is the last show before we go on holiday, and we weren't going to miss that. So, you get a Thursday show instead. Three things today. One is the Labour Party in the Dáil talking about how people need to stop objecting to housing developments in their area, which is just wonderfully shameless. I can only enjoy it. I think it, I think it is... This has the potential to take to knock Faulty Towers off the number one place in the list as the single funniest thing ever to happen on television. The second thing we want to talk about is the IMF have come out with some castings on the climate bill that was passed by the uh, Parliament. And nearly all of the Parliament passed it. There were only 10 votes against it in the Dáil. But it turns out that... Um, it's going to cost to implement it fully, according to the IMF, rather a spectacularly large amount of money. And I mean, I, I stress the spectacularly large amount of money part. There, I, I remember back when I was an astrology uh, student in my first year in college, discovering that there are tribes where, where counting is very limited. And there's a belief that, that in early civilization, this, there, there was a... The, the, Say if you're counting trees, it was kind of one, two, three, many. I think that the doll may be working on the basis that the RTD's capacity to count is one, two, three, many. Because if you if you're in the IMF report and this is what you voted for this anyway, then you are either a psychopath who hates people or you're counting one, two, three, many. So that that has gone through the doll. It hasn't come into law yet. It has to go to the Shannon. The third one we wanted to talk about, and I think we'll start on this, Michael, is that Neffet has finally gone before an Oroctus committee to explain their views on antigen testing. They went before the transport committee. And obviously it's a big issue in transport, particularly because of the airlines, and the airlines have been pushing for antigen testing, uh, and as have many business organizations, for months and months, uh, well into 2020. They were calling for this. So massive delays from their perspective. It was all a bit weird though, wasn't it? Yeah, we, so we had this opportunity to see Neffet sit down and explain their position. And firstly, it very much looked like Neffet did not want to be there. They weren't their usual selves. Tony Hulan seemed, I'm not sure, angry or, or, or irritated that he was being questioned in such a fashion. And it was still a fairly light questioning by the committee. I, you couldn't call it a, an inquisition or a grilling, but he seemed discomforted, uh, uh, peevish, not his usual kind of quiet, stolid, phlegmatic self basking in the approval of the journalists. This was a new experience. It didn't seem to be a particularly pleasant one for him. I didn't want to give off the energy of a man that didn't want to be there. No, I mean, I, I watched it because you know, maybe they're right about antigen testing. It's always good to let them put it forward. And as I watched more and more of it, it did not fill me with confidence that their position was one that had been um, reached after a long and rigorous investigation of the facts, Michael, and was totally cognizant of all of those facts. This has become something of a, a cause celebre because of the, um, the arrival of the scene of associate, because we have to remember that because it was pointed out, associate professor, Amina, who is the associate professor of epidemiology in Harvard, by the way. So, you know. If we're going to get hooked on titles, let's, let's throw the Harvard bit in there. Who only became aware of this because somebody had put a tweet in that was brought to his attention, which was a rather dismissive tweet, which got him to respond rather sharply, which ended up him going on radio. And then I think on TV, and then he was asked, he was he gave, did he give evidence to the Oireachtas Committee by um, Zoom? Anyway, he has... Uh, he has, well, I was going to say implied, he's basically said that from what he's heard, the people over here just don't understand what they're talking about when it comes to antigen testing, and he's a bit of a, a, a proponent or a supporter of antigen testing. It was at times like they were deliberately missing the point, that they were studiously ignoring the point that Mina was making about the relevance of antigen testing as regards discovering people who were infectious and since that is that is our the principal concern rather than the sensitivity of the test when compared to pcr and then the excessive sensitivity potentially of pcr if what you're trying to do is 
get people on an airplane and also that uh, it was the functionality and then the testing and whether or not it was that we had to do our valid our own validations the usefulness of pcr as a diagnostic tool rather than antigen testing as a, as a, as a test for infectiousness and so on it, it, it was like they circled but never quite got to the point and it was hard to know if this was a, a tactic or just a consequence of the questions or but it was all as i say a bit odd yeah it, it brought to mind kind of their position on masks where they came out so strongly against it and so this is going to hurt people and then there was just this sudden after a while once it became clear that this was the direction things were moving in there was just this sudden well the science has changed but no one could explain exactly how the science had changed or what science had changed and there was sort of a reek of we have said this Primarily to avoid embarrassment, because we came so hard at the other side. And looking at this, and, and listening to what they were saying, it did not build confidence. They seemed annoyed to be there, they seemed irritated. I think you're right, they seemed to be willfully missing the point on certain things. There was a demonstration at one point, Neffet showed the Oireachtas two antigen tests, uh, one of which was positive, and then they said that they got that positive through tonic water. I was watching it, you sort of go... What is the point of this demonstration? What what does this actually... What does it have to do with anything? Because if you're saying... There are a couple of things about it. If you're saying that if you expose this to certain materials, it will come back as a positive, well, what use of that to anyone? The only reason you could be saying that is if you're worried people will deliberately attempt to manipulate the tests. And why would you deliberately manipulate the tests to get a positive result? You're trying to get on the aeroplane. If you get a positive result... They will not let you on the aeroplane. And the objection to antigen testing surely would have to be that it was it, it, it had a tendency to give false negatives, that it was missing positive cases rather than creating positive cases. I mean, if, if our concern is safety, and that's the problem, and that's the objection to the tests, but in fact what they are are giving an excessive number of positive tests, well, then that's not an objection. It was also then, of course, the, the response from the committee was that they were largely talking about people doing this in controlled environments, and that wasn't really applicable at all. But the other thing, and I say this to someone who's always interested in the methodology of research, Michael, they came with those tests pre-prepared. So how many tests did they give tonic water and butter to before they got those results? How accurate were the tests? Or did they perhaps, did they go through a whole supermarket aisle? Did they try tinned peas and tomato sauce, Ribena and Gatorade, desperately see what, could they find something that would give them, I mean, who knows? Did, maybe they landed directly on tonic water. Maybe they maybe they spent two days trying every substance in their kitchen. I mean, look, sometimes there are calls for these sort of demonstrations, like uh, Richard Feynman demonstrating why the Challenger shuttle exploded with ice water and, and an o-ring that was you know incredible this is sort of here's what i made before there's no information about exactly what happened here you're just gonna have to trust me that this is an issue even though it if anything seems useless for the actual public well also i'd say just before i Gary, richard feynman was not in that room well yes <laughs> you know that's on. a fair comment but the, the, the thing the thing that really struck me about that demonstration is it seems to be based on the assumption that the public are going to deliberately manipulate these tests. Well, either that or, and this has been the constant theme, the, deliber the, the, the public is basically a mixture of incredibly stupid and slightly mad because it has been the consistent belief that if you do anything outside of the there's some kind of incredibly rigid structure that the public will just go mad, like masks. You've heard of a mask before. The belief was people would wear masks and that would be it. They would believe themselves to be utterly invincible and they would just strip naked and roll around on the street uh, with each other because I have a mask on. I'm... Now, where they got this notion from? And everything else has been seen to be connected. Oh, if we do that. And that's exactly the same reasons that they didn't want masks were given for the antigen. No, no, people get a false sense of security. The protection is only this limited. We don't, the masks hadn't been tested. We don't have the research on it. We need them. We need to validate exactly the same for the tests. It's not that I don't understand. There is this tendency, but one of the issues that has come out of this is that, that, there, that, that we, the kind of levels of reassurance or proof that you may need in peacetime as opposed to a public health emergency may be different. Uh, we may have to apply different standards. 
there maybe have to be prudential, what you might call prudential risks to be taken because they have to have, it is always a balancing act. And they still haven't, they still don't seem to have got the fact that this is a, is not a simple yes or no, but it's always a balancing act. It's always a question of one good against another or one evil against another and trying to assess which is, which is the greater good or the greater evil and what, where the balance lies. We are not looking at, we're not looking for perfection here. We're not in a position to get perfection here. And there, there were some really weird comments that were made. I mean, there were a lot of comments about how we couldn't use antigen testing because there had been no real world studies. But it was actually kind of bundled together into two separate things. So what Hulahan actually said was um, many of these tests had been brought to market without appropriate real world evaluation and well-designed studies. Now, the and there carries a lot of work because if you just say well-designed studies, there's actually quite a lot of tests that you can look at. And then you sort of go, well, is that relevant? Because in the EU, there are quality marks on some of these tests that have been looked at, that have been reviewed and have been deemed to be acceptable. So while you can go, well, there's tons of tests that are shit, you do have to sort of go, well, does that matter if you can't sell those? Or if people are able to easily differentiate which ones are deemed to be better? And that just didn't seem to go in there. There was also this thing about the real world experience, Michael, I found yeah. quite funny overall, considering that Neffet as a group based rather a lot of their recommendations upon modelling. Modelling, which, Michael, I would argue in review, a large amount of is arguably, should we say, not entirely accurate. Well, our experience of modelling the last couple of years, Gary, has not, and I am a utter ignoramus when it comes to this, but has le it left me with less confidence now when people talk about modelling. I mean, we've seen uh, the modelling that is being used for minimal colour pricing as well, and again, the modelling here, and we've had, oh God, the modelling in, in, in England was going to have, what, half a million dead here? The middle, the middle estimate, which was probably the one we're going for because we got the lower estimate, was gone, was, what, 25,000 dead? That was the, mo the middling estimate. Yeah, the modelling has not been... Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm apropos of uh, of that kind of thing. Now this isn't effort, but rather I think more zero COVID. Although maybe some people are attached to it. It's like it's the again the um, refusal to look into the real world. You, you, you know, this is not quite this is not the point of effort, but it's been on the radio a lot. And I just wanted to mention it. You know all this talk. I, I can't remember what they're what they're called anymore. You know the variant Delta and variant Beta. All these. The, what we used to call the Kent variation of the Indian variant, or the South African and the Brazilian, all that, right? Yes. And all of the concerns, well, whoa, whoa, lads, don't go slow, go slow. Variants are out there. There are mutant variants, the mutant variants. And, you know, these. it's coming. There are there are three people on the last week, more on the radio, unchallengedly talking about um, the way that these, you know, What's it becoming or demonstrating a capacity for vaccine resistance? Yeah, often coupled with a sort of that the way some of these people are talking about these variants is as if they were, but not just alive, but sentient and malevolent. Funnily enough, I, I remember being fascinated over, and I, I, somebody will now come along and say that's not actually true. That viruses, unlike bacteria, are technically not alive. And this is a virus. But anyway, that's that's a minor point. Yeah, I know exactly what it's this weird kind of not quite anthropomorphization of them, but like an animalistic version of one. But we do have real world data. The real world data doesn't need to matter when it's the wrong one. Uh, it was pub it was published a couple of days ago, or was it BMJ or something, that uh, two double dosed Pfizer ag against uh, one or two of the variants was 95% effective, another was 96 or 97% effective against hospitalization or serious illness. It's not like suddenly the, 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 we are looking at a situation where the AstraZeneca, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are collapsing in their protective capacities in the face of these universities. Just not happening. Now, if we are going to go around on the basis that, well, no, it hasn't happened yet, but it could happen. Well, Gary, my understanding is from quantum physics, and my understanding is simply is based, I should point out, on jokes that I've heard 
in the Big Bang Theory, is pretty well anything could happen. But that's really not how we organise our lives. <laughs> okay. But anyway, that's my point. It, it seems to me that when the, re the real world data is there, we ignore it because, well, you know, or, or, or we create standards so high that the real world data becomes irrelevant. Yeah, I, I saw some of the recent research that came out on um, the Delta, the, the British variant, and some of the reports came out you know, a couple of hours after we had the usual doom mongering on RTE. You know, that's just unfortunate timing for everyone involved. But yeah, the, the, there seems to be a, an anthropomorphization of the virus. Like it is hunting you, it is stalking you, and it's time to hole up in your house with a shotgun and close the windows because it's just looking for a way in. Do you remember? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And the funny thing about that is, back in April of last year, I mean, that early on, the, the prominent virologist in Israel, I remember him saying, "We have to get." get through to people that this virus is not this animal which is at your door knocking trying to get in that if you behave in a reasonable way and protect yourself and mind yourself you you can be safe but we have invented this thing where pe I, generally people think oh if i stay behind my door it can't get in at me but it's trying to get in there or it could be a moral agent michael punishing those who are acting improperly there's also a, there's a little bit of that creeping in as well but very disappointing, Gary, though, I must say. Very disappointing to see. 17 days after all that riotous drinkingness and young peopleness going on in St. William Street, no spike. The wicked, Gary, the wicked man flourishes like the Green Bay Tree. It's very sad. They should all have been slain by the COVID. There were, there were two other things, two other remarks I thought were particularly interesting in it. One was Ronan Glynn came out and said that um, he was talking about why are there no studies being done on this in Ireland? And Ronan Glynn said, well, it's a misconception that Neffet has not bothered to do these studies. Those studies haven't been done anywhere. <laughs> you, you do have to sort of go, but inside that answer, isn't there an admittance that you haven't done any? Regardless of the truth of what other people are doing, mm. it's not actually a misperception. It's actually that you haven't done it. It was, but there was a fantastic yes minister moment for anybody who gets that reference. That at one stage where they having admitted that there was no nothing was being done, had been, either by Neffet or anybody else. There was also then a reference to the fact that validation, I think this was Dr. Hula who said, validation would have to be done, right? We, these tests would have to be validated. He then later on goes says, but you know what, by the time we get all that done, we won't be using we won't need any tests anyway. So what's the point in doing them? the standard civil service excuses, and one of them is, oh, we would have loved to do something, it's too late now. There, no, there isn't any, there's, there's no problem. Well, there is a problem, but there isn't anything we can do. Well, there was something we could have done, but it's too late now. And it's very much, that's the point. Well, there was something we could have done, but it's too late now. So if we if we just leave it go, by the time, it'll, it'll sort itself out. It kind of reminds me of um, earlier when people were asking Neffet about why they were closing certain sectors and what the, the research was. And it came out in a sort of casual fashion that Neffet didn't actually have enough data to tell which sectors were really problems. And they were just making a series of assumptions at a pretty blunt, like just a hammer down. And then when they were asked about it, they basically just said it wasn't necessary and was of no use. And you did have to sort of go, but how could that be true? <laughs> And if it was true, even if it was true, how would you know? <laughs> you know, I mean, it might be true, but how would you? How do you know? I, I, I love it. I love the idea of Neffet just being like, well, it's not that we're not doing it; it's that no one is doing it, and they're just sitting there with their tub of butter and their tonic water. <laughs> and you just you had to look at, and you're like, do you think this is going well? Yeah, is this your idea of a good show? The modelling comment, I think, was my favourite. Just, oh, well, there's no real-world evidence. And you're like, you don't seem to have that trouble when you're doing things. <laughs> but it is a sort of, like, oh, maybe there's some use, but we're not going to look into it. Ash, like, it'll be fine. Be grand, be grand. And then we'll have, like, another airline collapse, and then they'll be like, oh, who could have seen this coming? You know, it's a, it's a lovely country. Why wouldn't you have your holidays here anyway? And then, of course, there were all the questions, like, but the rest of the EU does this, why don't we? And what was it? They said that they don't do it because the PCR is such a superior test and we have such a vast capability of PCR testing 
why would anyone even want to do that? And you have to sort of go, you're in a fucking committee to talk about it. Various industry groups are calling for it. Clearly people want it. Whether or not it's appropriate for them to want it, they clearly do. I'm just a bit confused there also. And there may well be an answer to this. They kept on talking about the validation and there were no tests. But we know that there are tests which are on the market in the EU, which have the EU stamp. It says EU on them. And there are, I think, nine. Well, it's a while since I looked, but I know at one stage there were nine tests that have been, that according to the EU standards, had a, I want to say, effectivity rate of 95% or higher. But that sounds like there's some kind of test has been done, Gary. Some kind of validation has taken place. So I don't. What hasn't taken place? Well, you see, that, that's where we fall back on the, the and, I said, was very important in what Houlihan was saying. It, wasn't ju- it was real-world experience and well-constructed tests. So they've got the latter. But, I mean, do they have the former to, to where we'd like it to be? Um, I did. There was, there was a moment as well when they were, after they did their little showcase with Tonic mm-hmm. One, uh, where the Neffet member conducting it said... As an explanation, it's widely discussed on the internet. And the response was, well, we've moved from um, peer-reviewed studies to someone said it on the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. Really, really, no, no, no. That's, that's, I was talking to a lady who met a ma- whom, whom my aunt met at mass, and she told me, no, I'm, that's... Uh... And then they seemed open to the possibility of, oh, we might do a small trial run when they were asked about it. And you sort of go... Maybe this might be the sort of thing you want to be a little bit proactive on. <laughs> as opposed to, I mean, we could. It's like we, we had that little concert that we did as a trial run. But we did it after like there was widespread revelry on the streets of Dublin. And you had to sort of look at it and go, well, like, what the fucking point of a trial run is there when people are already doing it? And also, it wasn't any, as it turned out, as regards the gathering of data, didn't seem to be a trial actually anyway. And also, did you, I mean, you looked, I don't know if you saw any of the, the, the video or, or the stills from our trial and compared them to the concert, the trials they were running, say, in the, the Netherlands or Spain, which seemed to be to be much more, shall we say, real world. In other words, everybody was just rubbing up against each other and sweat knowledge over each other, as opposed to sitting inside squares drawn out with some kind of sort of white chalk material on the grass and nicely socially distanced. Which, you know, I don't really think is a real world trial. I, we complain, Michael, but uh, Tony Houlihan has the freedom of Dublin now and we don't. Although there are a couple of uh, a couple of the women involved in cervical check who appear to be deeply unhappy about that. Uh, but we won't go into that because that's already been litigated. Yes, quite right too. Moving on as this. So, the IMF and the Climate Bill. So, the Climate Bill has gone through the doll. It was voted through by a ridiculous, ridiculous uh, margin. It's now gone to the Shannon. The opposition came out, and they were very against certain prospects of it. There were like 160 amendments put forward. We did the standard thing, where we allowed them to debate a short amount, and then just went, no. Mm-hmm. But it went through. And it will most likely, at the margins it was going through, all of the opposition parties, uh, the major ones, are behind it, even as they complain about it. You've got kind of the rural independence against it, that's about it. The IMF comes out with a report, their annual report into Ireland, which actually took me a while to find, because this was reported in the Irish Times, but they did the thing the Irish Times usually does, where they'll say there was a report, but they don't give you the fucking name of the report. Yeah. So I spent ages trying to figure out what it was and was eventually able to work it out. It's it's the IMF's country report from May 25th of this year. I'll include a link to it uh, below so that you guys can just have a look at it if you want, if that's, you know, the sort of thing you're into of a Thursday. Not basically. They explicitly say that in order to meet the requirements put out in this bill, we would need to invest close to 20 billion annually over the next 10 years. Sorry, by the can I just put the translation there? Spend. In this case, the word invest means spend. Because a lot of people think invest means like put money in your pension fund or buy stocks or bonds or a money. No. Investing means you put money in and it grows and at the end of it, you have more money. 
and you have money for doing nice things when you're retired. This means spend. 20 billion is a number that I don't think actually means anything to people because it's so large, it's hard to actually quantify. Well, unless you're Jess Bezos. Or someone very interested in international accountancy. <laughs> God, you'd like to sit beside them at dinner. 20 billion is about 5% of Irish GDP. 5% of Irish GDP. That's not GNI or anything like that. We've taken out the distortionary impact of the multinationals. That's GDP. That's the thing we tell people not to use. It's about 6% if you use GNI from just a rough calculation. How much money is that in real in real terms? So th there's a website called whereyourmoneygoes.gov.ie. It's actually a very good initiative of the Irish government uh, to explain where public expenditure goes. In 2021, the total expenditure was 89 billion. Right. Now that's quite high as expenditures go. I mean, if you look back at like 2016, we had expenditure of like 68 billion, but it's an unusual time and it's pretty close to what we had in um, 2020, by which it's only about 9 billion higher. Only. Only about 9 billion higher. The entire health budget of the state, the entire health budget is 22.1 billion a year. Education, 8.9 billion. The entire justice budget, including prisons and everything, 3 billion. Everything involving agriculture, 1.8. The debt servicing of all of our loans and our payments to the EU, 9.2 billion. The entire transport budget is 3.5 billion. Social protection is 22.3 billion. And then there is the wonderful other category with 17.8 billion. I'll also put a link to this so that people can have a look at it. It's actually pretty interesting just to see how the government pisses away money this time. So we're talking about this climate bill being effectively our entire education budget, our entire debt servicing budget, and, you know, maybe throw on top the ag budget or the transport budget or the justice budget, and you just be a bit over it every year. Uh, and that's every year. And I, Michael, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to cast dispersions here, but I have a feeling that TDs don't realise that. I would suspect that many of the people who voted for this bill don't know what they've just done. But I have for a long time liked to point out that socialism is the kind of thing that only wealthy people can afford. If you're wealthy, you can afford a little bit of socialism. If you're poor, you're fucked. And I think that this is a perfect example of that. Because, okay, as you laid out rather eloquently, the lumpy size of the money that is going to be have to be shelled out, either which will have to be raised either in uh, in increased taxation or in uh, cuts in spending or a mixture of both, or growing the economy at eleven percent a year, which would you know that, that would do it either, but it'd be tricky to get the climate reductions in at that basis. But the other way to look at this, Gary, is this is based on an annual reduction of seven percent, right, in greenhouse gases. Emissions, generally, shall we say, yeah. Now, am I? I'm right in saying that I think that in the in the in the pandemic year, our total emissions declined by less than seven percent. I think it was about six percent, six point something percent. Some six point something percent. So I just want the the the, 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 the good peoples out there to think about that. Think about the level of activity that we saw in our economy last year. That's what you need to do and a little bit more in order to achieve a 7% decline in emissions. Is that really what we want? Or more to the point, is that something that we can afford to do? Or frankly, are we going to start eating the, the children of the poor? Well, I, I think the, uh, the important point to make here, Michael, is this. It's not 7% cut over 10 years, or it's not cut it at 7% and keep it there. It is cumulative annual emission cuts of at least 7%. So it starts like the pandemic year, but then you need to, once you've brought it down that level, you then need to bring it down that level again and again and again. No, not quite, because of course, 7% of the first target number is going to be a bigger number than 7% of the second, because the second is going to be smaller. So the emission, total emissions are going to be reducing each year. But so your capacity to cut every year, all the, all the low-hanging fruit is gone. All gone in your first year, your second year, and your third year, and your fourth year. Now, throw into this fun 
booyah base of green politics. The fact that as we speak, Gary, we are in the yellow warning zone regarding electricity supply in Ireland. Now, there are standard predictors that people in the electricity business can do. And they tell you that when you reach a certain point where you come close X number of times, after that, you get to the point where you will have blackouts. It just always happens. We are getting to that point because we don't have... Now, what, so what are we going to do? Um, are we going to import more electricity? Well, where are we going to get this electricity from? The Brits are already going, are already working on capacity. So ultimately, the only choice we're going to have is either to import electricity from, say, France, if they had stuff, from their large-scale nuclear industry, or gas, or gas-generated electricity, with the pipeline coming in from Russia. Now, if that's the case, Gary, can someone explain to me why we have decided on the back of our green policies to stop looking for our own fucking gas? We've passed the law saying no more gas looking over here. Stop the looking for the gas. The gas is the bad. The investing, the digging up and looking for the gas is a bad thing. But in order to generate electricity, and because we can't use our peak powered electricity generating anymore, and we won't use coal, unlike Germany or unlike China, which is providing half the world's emissions anyway, we're going to have gas. Would somebody describe the the, the the coherence of this plan to me. Explain, please, how this is coherent and how we're not all going to starve. Oh, and by the way, we're also going to cut, we are also going to cut the herd. This big thing, have to cut the herd. Herd is bad. We have too many cattle, we have to cut the herd. Even though, because of the way we raise meat and we raise milk on this, which is basically grass-based as opposed to indoor and feed-based, while we have higher emissions because we have a larger herd, it is actually a, we, a much more ecological way, if that's what you care about, than, say, the kind of production methods that you're going to be looking at in, say, the Netherlands or Italy, which may end up actually increasing their production because you're still going to have to produce meat to meet the market, but in a way which is going to be more less emissions-friendly. What I mean, this stuff is just mad. It also contains that thing. I, I dislike above nearly anything else, which is the granting of statutory powers. And in this instance, of course, it's the Climate Advisory, uh, or sorry, the Climate Change Advisory Council will now have statutory powers when this goes through. The thing here is, when you look at what they'll actually have to do to even get close to trying to bring this in and what they're thinking about, it is going to make people's lives worse. And it is going to make some existing problems in Ireland substantially worse. Housing, to begin with, because of the energy efficiency requirements in housing. It's already incredibly expensive to build a house in Ireland, not entirely because of the requirements of how a house has to be built, but it is there. I mean, there's other things like financing costs and the like. I can tell you, because we've been looking at this, it is a, a very significant issue, part of the, the house building costs in Ireland have been regulations. I mean... Energy efficiency is one part of it, but there are all sorts of other environmental regulations, building regulations, which all come together to mean that the differential in the house, the cost of one-off house here and, say, in the United Kingdom is massive. But anyway, the statutory power thing, though, is re you're absolutely right there. That is yet another condom that Irish politicians are putting on them. So they can say, oh, well, that's nothing, again, that's nothing to do with us. Nobody should have statutory powers outside of the door because if the citizen must know where they can go to seek recourse. Independent, non-parliamentary statutory bodies are basically little mini dictatorships that are not responsible to anyone. And because that's the point they're not responsible to the minister, ultimately, because that the minister doesn't want they to be responsible for them, because the minister doesn't want to be held responsible for these actions. And that's the whole fucking point of a parliamentary democracy, that the minister and the TDs are held responsible, first by the doll and then by the people. Tony Benn, who I couldn't stand, used to say that there were five tests when you must meet someone who was in power. And that you must get the, you must get the right answer for every one of them for you to believe in a democracy. And in this, he, wasn't, he, he might have had a point. One of the questions is, how do I get rid of you? It's a really interesting question, Gary. How do I get rid of you? So I meet somebody from Antashka, right, with statutory powers. 
And I say, how do I get rid of you? There is no mechanism. There is no mechanism for me to get rid of that person. Statutory powers for this climate body, how do I get rid of you? No mechanism. Fundamentally anti-democratic. Slap in the back of the hand for that one. But it will fly through. And nobody will comment. But the numbers of this, they, they all voted. What was it, 110 of them? 129 to 10. 129 of them. And you, those 10 people who voted against, will be portrayed as backwoodsmen and troglodytes in the, in, the, in, the pa- in the pages of our press. Yeah, I mean, you had five of the rural independents, three of the regional independents, and two members of the independent group. I mean, the general point I would make here, it's something we've talked about before. When you look at the actual things that have improved human existence, the various you know, revolutions, they all actually fundamentally are about the same thing. They're about energy. They're about the creation and distribution of energy, whether it's the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution, it's all actually the same thing. Cheap energy has been the primary driver of human prosperity. These kind of bills explicitly will set out to make it more expensive because they have to make it more expensive because they have to cause a reduction. There's no way you can engage in a 7% reduction in emissions year on year without impacting on energy. And as you impact on energy, you'll impact on quality of life. These bills will make people's lives worse. You can argue that that is justifiable given the ecological situation. But that's not an argument that's being made. It is being presupposed that this is simply the thing to be done, a good thing. There's no real debate on the actual impact it will have on the man on the street. And if we get five years into this, you may find that the man on the street is pretty pissed off about the impact. You know what you're saying about energy is absolutely true. I mean, there's a fantastic example of that, and the consequences. Um, paraffin, who was the big oil man in the States? Was it Rockefeller? Rockefeller was, I think it was Rockefeller. Maybe it was Carnegie. Anyway, somebody back, one of those robber barons, who weren't robber barons at all, worked out one of the problems, the two, he, he did two things, tremendous things, pure for, for pure capitalism. One of the problems historically with the with the creation of paraffin which was the principal source of light uh, for homes in in, in in that Victorian period in the, in the United States and other places was you got a byproduct right and the byproduct was thrown into the rivers and it was terribly pollutant and he thought well, let's see if we can do something with this anyway in the end he, he took the what was left over and he turned it into petroleum jelly which was an incredibly useful thing so instead of throwing it away and polluting it, he created this very useful thing, which he sold and made money on. He, he, and using a new process, he reduced the cost of paraffin, which I think it was something wrong, from seven cents, we'll say a pint, to one cent. And that did something absolutely uh, incredible. It meant that children could read at home, because the United States, has a, long before anywhere else in the world, had a very extensive, very good public school system. But now meant that the children out in the prairies, who otherwise, when it got dark, that was it. Now, in the same way as glasses could pr- prolong the creative life of intellectuals after the, the invention of the lens, children could now read and do work, do homework and do schoolwork after that. Even the children of the poor. And that, radi- that was a radical e- egalitarian move because of the activity of a creative capitalist. I, just, I think it's a great story. But... You've made this point before about energy guardian. I think it's something that people don't don't get enough. The level to which our civilization relies on plentiful supplies of cheap energy, and it's becoming ever more reliant. We are incredibly guzzlers, and yet, how many people are are yet willing to admit that if we're going to go down this way, there is right now only one jet fuel energy generating possibility available to us if we don't want emissions. Well, this is going to be difficult because the environmental movement fucked that energy. So uh, it remains a source of constant amusement to me that the environmental movement spends all of this time talking about how we need to move to these cleaner forms of energy. But then you look at the demonization of nuclear power, which was largely held, uh, like led by the environmental movement. And you sort of go, you know, that's, If you hadn't done that, there would probably have been a widespread proliferation of nuclear reactors far before this. And this situation would not be happening. We would be in an entirely different situation. In 
<laughs> it's, like it is legitimately amusing. They have played a key part in creating the situation that they now desperately want to undo, but they don't seem to realise it. There's one other point I would make, actually, Michael, and it's on the relation of uh, emissions. If you want to create the most environmentally, um, let's say, positive steps, sometimes relying on emissions can actually be not as easy as you would think. So, for instance, plastic bags, Michael. Yes. Plastic bags are far more efficient than paper bags. The production of a plastic bag, actually, if you wanted to use, let's say, a cotton bag, because hippies love cotton bags. Hmm. And you want, how many, if you looked at how many times you have to use that bag before it becomes more environmentally friendly than a single-use plastic bag, it's like 130 times. Yes. So there is this sort of thing of, in many cases, the things you would assume are um are environmentally friendly are actually not the environmentally friendly option but then in relation to plastic bags you have to say well it's much more difficult to recycle it's not biodegradable it can go into the oceans it can do all of these things but if you focus purely on the emissions which is what this bill will do you can find yourself making some quite strange decisions it's like buying a prius or keeping your 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 old diesel car as far as i'm on to on on and it may be that the the technologies will change and improve and this will no longer be the case. But it has been for a long time a fact that if your principal concern is sustainability and emissions, you keep driving your old diesel car because the amount of energy used up, the emissions emitted, and then the rare elements used, and then the problems with the recycling of the batteries and all that mean that junking your old car and then buying, having a new car made for you is a negative, is, is an ecological negative. Even though you might be producing fumes for your diesel car and you might be producing emissions, the total, shall we say, balance comes out negative because of all of, of the requirements that you need to, to create your new Prius or your new Tesla or whatever. Now, that may not always be the case, but certainly it still is the case now. Yeah, these, these computations are not straightforward or obvious. And there's lots of, there's lots of stuff about the, the climate debate, which is not straightforward or obvious, but we won't get into that today. No, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It is exactly the same problem you find with electric cars, that they have to offset the actual increased cost of producing those cars, and particularly because they make so much use of some quite interesting materials. Well, lithium and mercury. And yeah, and, you know, the widespread use of child... Uh, you know, slave <laughs> yeah, yeah, but do we, I don't know if we, ch- we care about... Do we still care about child labour? Well, I mean, it's it's rather a green policy, Michael, to support the use of uh, child slave labour as long as it's in the manufacture of these batteries because then you get the greening effect of the electronic devices and also when those children die of mercury poisoning at the ripe old age of 10, well, there's less people and then you're engaging in what they call degrowth. So it's just good for the world. You, you could, in many ways, it's always good for the world. Yeah, you know, you know degrowth is a big thing at the moment. Um, you get some of our our our, our more uh, more energetic greeners want to see the human population reduced to five hundred million. Some of them want to see them just extirpated. Richard Attenborough, the lions eating zebras guy, um, is a big fan of getting rid of people. Yeah, Michael. You know, he says that. But you know what? I know every time I hear. That it's Michael Attenborough telling me it. And surely if you think there should be no people, you should go hang yourself in your barn. And if you're not going to do that, well, I just don't believe you have the strength of your convictions. But have you seen that the, uh, uh, in the middle of all of this, the new crisis that's looming is the new demographic crisis facing uh, China and Europe, not Africa, and other places, I can't remember where, where there's not going to be enough of us. We're going to be simultaneously too many and not enough. Michael, just before we we wrap up, Labour. Oh, yeah, we have to. Labour think there's too many people putting in planning objections, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Adon O'Riordan raised the issue of changing the view, the way we view housing, to put a bigger emphasis on creating diverse communities, creating a better quality of life. Because Adon has been banging away Every time anybody's wanted to build houses anywhere near Adon's, he wants to say, no, these communities that are being built are not diverse enough. They must be more diverse because my constituents would demand that they're more diverse. So we need more diverse. This is not a diverse community. We want to, com- 
We want a community that will have doctors and architects and lawyers and engineers and software designers and people who work in RT and at the civil earth. We want that, you know, oh, over grade five. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we proper diversity, Gary. Did he begin this talk, Michael, by saying, someone has got to stop me. I didn't think I'd be let get this far. <laughs> I thought to be a sniper or at least a clown with a pie because it was impossible to listen to it without laughing out loud. I mean, really, really it was. I mean, used to, how he could do this without dislike, he turned around and twisted on a record like his that he didn't dislocate his back. It was remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. But speaking more seriously, Gary, because you know, we're serious people, <laughs> he wanted to put a bigger diversity, creating diverse communities, creating a better life for all. I want to see these, I want to see the, the, the data on that. I want to see the data where, which shows that diverse communities create better life for everybody. I'm nothing, I'm nothing against but diverse communities, whatever the fuck that means, I don't really know. I suspect I know, but I'm not, it does seem to morph and change a little bit. You know, historically, when you allow people to choose where they will live, they tend to live with people like themselves. So when Irish people went to the United States and went to live in New York or Boston or where, they tended to live near other Irish people. Poor Irish people lived with poor Irish people and after a while middle class Irish people moved out and went to live with other middle class Irish people. And after a few generations they start to feel less Irish and more American and you get they allow they <laughs> there are some privately privately unincorporated uh, communities in New York which were set up purely as Irish, often along the seaside. And I also was amusing that for the first two generations, only Irish, the, the, the first ethnic group that came in after them were Jews. They wouldn't let in Italians. And I said, what, what, what does that say about the Irish-American? That they're willing to let in New York Irish, uh, American Jews, but not American Italians. There's a, there's a there's wonderful, curmudgeonly, cranky attitude going on there, which I have to say is admirable. But what's... What are, why do we have, why does the state have a role in constructing social experiments in housing estates? I, I, nobody's explained this to me. They just, it's presented to me as a fact that this is a good thing. Nobody's ever shown me how it's a good thing. It's never been demonstrated to me. The major problem when we talk about diverse communities is Putnam's study on it. So for those who aren't aware, Robert Putnam is, he's a Harvard professor impeccable liberal impeccable lovely lovely nice man in 2007 he published a study which looked at the benefits of living in uh, racially diverse communities yeah and he sat on the study for years because he didn't like the results of it kind of tells you a bit about robert putnam but basically it said that racially diverse communities are taking everything else into account they possess less trust in each other than other communities and that uh, multiracial and multicultural areas, not less good, but don't have is... Uh... They're more socially challenging. Yes. Putman's big idea is, is social capital. You've got social capital and you've got social trust and bridges, bridges and breaks. And the problem is that in, in, these, in the more diverse areas, that there is a diminution. So people tend to be more atomistic. So you have a decline in community activity. You have lower levels of of people involved in voluntary clubs and stuff like that. Putnam, for the if you're listening, wondering there, listener, this he wrote a he's best known for a book called Bowling Alone, which is very good. Which is very very good. And actually, do you know what? You should have a look around for, on YouTube a conversation between Putnam and Charles Murray. Charles Murray, who's most famous or infamous for the his book on uh, IQ, but he wrote a book called Coming Apart, which is social problems of social social dysfunction in the United States. And there's a conversation between Murray and Putnam, two social scientists, one from the left, one from the right, similar interests. And it's really interesting because it, they're, they're insights. And a lot of them are, at a smaller scale, applicable to ourselves. Well, another thing that Putnam points out, I mean, not just Putnam, but... You know, 
uh, and I wouldn't put too much weight on this, but that we were talking about, if you're looking at the relationship between crime and poverty, that crime in itself doesn't seem to be caused by poverty, but rather if you have very poor people living mixed in with or in close proximity to rich people, unsurprisingly perhaps, you get higher degrees of resentment and higher degrees of a sense of, of dissatisfaction with your own life. People, dissatisfaction with your life doesn't seem to be directly connected to the level of material success that you have. If everybody around you is more or less at the same level, people seem to be more or less satisfied. It's only when you have a sense that either you have that other people have a higher level than you that they don't deserve or that you've been held back that people deserve that resentment seems to happen. So actually, keeping and I, no, I'm not saying nor do I believe you should build walls to stop people, separate people, but it does seem the idea that automatically putting rich people and poor people and ethically and culturally diverse people into is into the same place and this is going to produce lovely magical response is actually nonsense. I mean if nothing else, I put it this way, Gary, Florence in 1400 was not a massively diverse place, but it was rather creative. On the other hand, New York in the 20th century, very diverse place and very creative. I don't know. I'm not saying that there is a, and one is good, one bad, but I'm saying that there's no necessary connectivity. No, there does seem to be this assumption now that diversity in and of itself is a good thing. Lots of the research on diversity is is not good, particularly on diversity in businesses. Terrible, terrible, a lot of it. Even Putnam's research has been um, has been argued with and people have said he's he's weighed things improperly or he's, he's not measuring things. Putnam's careful, man. The results of whether or not Putnam is correct or not correct do not reflect on how you should treat other people. It's simply a statement of the facts. If it is the case that diverse communities are better or worse, or there's no change, that is simply simply something that we should recognise. What you do with that information depends on your other political views. But there is this weird thing, not weird, I suppose, it's, it's pretty understandable, where when people discuss this, if they discuss a negative result, people will say they're being racist, even if they do not make any statement about the moral value of it. It's, if it's a fact, it's a fact. So, I mean, here's a quote from Putnam, from one of his lectures. Diversity does not produce bad race relations or ethnically defined group hostilities, our findings suggest. Rather, inhabitants of diverse communities tend to withdraw from collective life, to distrust their neighbours, regardless of the colour of their skin, to withdraw even from close friends, to expect the worst from their community and its leaders, to volunteer less, give less to charity, and work on community projects less often, to register to vote less, to agitate for social reform more, but have less faith that they can actually make a difference, and to huddle in happily in front of the television. Note that this pattern encompasses attitudes and behaviours, bridging and bonding social capital, public and private connections. Diversity, at least in the short run, seems to bring out the turtle in all of us. Now, if he's right on that, and you naively assume that diversity is going to be this magical thing that makes everyone feel better, you will end up with a negative outcome because you won't be able to deal with this. It would yes. seem that if you actually want to build a diverse society, you need to understand things like that so that you can act to mitigate them or to ensure that they don't actually become problems. There is also work that has been done that suggests that the way we deal with diversity depends very much, obviously, but on our on our social context and also on chronology. So, for example, if you grow up in a very homogeneous suburb as a your child, then you're a teenager, then you rebel, and you go through your period in your twenties. There's a period which it's it's a normal thing where, for a period of time, your family become your friend, your friends become your family. And they're your most important social structure outside. And you move. Say you go from being suburbs into, if you're talking about New York, you go into Soho or whatever. You choose these diverse, these ethnic diverse communities. Yeah, you can enjoy them and they can be very important to you. They can be very positive experience. It is true, however, that you will tend, when they look at them, that you tend to exist within a socially restricted life. Now, I don't want to get the words right here, but well, I do want to get the words right here. People enjoy the diversity. I mean, people are particularly younger people. They very much enjoy the diversity, but they enjoy it in a sense almost vicariously and as a spectacle and in a, and also because it it fits in with how they see themselves. But the, but it, the, material, the diversity in a sense washes over them. They, 
it's not that people who live in those circumstances are actually going to have large numbers of friends from different ethnic communities, from different cultural backgrounds, or from, from different perspectives or different political realities. They see them there, they know they're out there, and they like that, but it doesn't actually make them themselves in their own sort of formed communities, and particularly more diverse. And then when they get married, or form relationships, and then certainly when they start to have children, they then retreat back to the social capital, the safe social accrued capital of the suburbs where people uh, cooperate and act in these sort of fashions. I think that one of the really interesting things that Putnam makes is in that quote, Gary, the, I've heard him talk about this, is that it doesn't, it's not, uh, it's not, the, 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 the levels of withdrawal and distrust aren't racially, uh, it's not a racial thing, not racially connected, but rather it affects all of your relationships. And affects the relationships even with your friendships, and you get reduced numbers of friendships, and the the the, the friendships become less uh, active. It's it's across the board. It's really interesting. Now he has been criticised. Yes, Putnam's very pretty careful, but it's a very interesting piece of work, and it's a substantial. And it's worth reading. And, and certainly, if this is like Adon, you're taking these things as an article of faith. It's a very challenging thing. Yeah, I mean. I very much doubt that Adon has a clue how to respond to Putnam on that. He wouldn't if he if he's if he's aware of Putnam. He should be. I mean, he should be. But has he form? I have never heard anybody formulate an articulated defence of the notion of diversity, which is based on empirical data. Putnam is of the left, clearly, which is why he sat on that report for a number of years before eventually releasing it, and because he didn't like himself what it said, and he had hoped he was wrong. Yeah, and he also did, he, every so often he'd go back and check it, and he'd do a little bit more research, and he'd think, you know, no, it's still wrong. It's still not the result. But then eventually he did, he, he released it. Published, I, I said he published the paper in 2007, and that's true, but he initially published the data set in 2001. Yeah. So, like, this is not a man who was rushing to put his name on that document. No, 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 no. This was not a paper hey, Look what I found, guys. I'd like to imagine him just looking at it, getting to the end, like, oh, bollocks. It's not good. It's not good. It's not good. Did I put a minus where I should have put a plus somewhere? This is not good. But Adon, I mean, anyway, listen, leaving aside all this terribly, terribly serious stuff, I just find it comical to hear Adon or Erdogan talking about and building and anything. And all, this is all, this, all of this is going back. The Labour Party has decided to resurrect the Kenny Report. Which came out, no, that, that's a bit before my time, Michael. Um, I think that's before many people's time. That came out like 50 years ago, didn't it? 73, I think, the Kenny Report was. I was four, so I remember it well. The Kenny Report, I mean, one of the principal things about the Kenny Report was that um, that it would give local authorities the right to CPO any house, any development land it wanted, with uh, compensating the owner at a rate of 25 per, of the agricultural value plus 25%. Um, it fell through for a number of reasons. It was based on an Italian, I think it was based on an, an, Ita an Italian idea, which I think was knocked down by the Constitutional Court in Italy. It, it all went to that uh, ended up going to Europe, which was and it was the Scordino case. I think I may be making that up, but in my head is is that a pizza? Actually, it's a, it's a pizza. Is it Scordino? Anyway, it was either very impactful or a pizza. The Scordino case, and it was found to be against. Uh, it was a, that if that it was an illegitimate restriction of the or the right to enjoy property uh, uh, in in sort of in your in uh, in peace. And so it was knocked down. I, and there were also other constitutional decisions in Ireland, which makes me think that this is still probably unconstitutional here and problematic at the very least. But the thing that annoys me about it is two things, many things. Two things. Okay, first of all, I think Ronan. Have you seen Ronan Lyons' uh, graph looking at the price recently? He's been said he's retweeted it a number of times, and it's very interesting. Tracking the cost of house building in Dublin as opposed to the, the cost of house building across the country. I've seen many graphs from uh, from Ronan Lyons. From me, yeah, well, yeah, this is true. For many years. For many years, the cost of build, the cost of house in Dublin was much the same as the average cost of the house outside Dublin. But then you get to a point in the eighties where the cost starts to diverge, 
Here's a fascinating fact, Gary. I don't know if it's anything to do with it. That around this time, house building in Dublin collapsed in comparison to the number of houses being built out in the country. So more houses being built in the country, fewer houses being built in Dublin, houses in the country get relatively cheaper, houses in Dublin get relatively more expensive. Now, I don't know if there's a connection there. You need an economist to work that one out. But there seems to be something going on. So point number one. Second point is there was a time, and for a very long time, and it has occurred again, uh, uh, certainly in the, in the Great Crash, where the cost of building the house, a large part of the cost of the building the house was the, was the price of the land. First of all, that is only because we artificially inflate price of land because of our planning laws, giving lotteries, we're basically giving one person a lottery win by saying we're going to develop over there, not over there, so we're going to make your land valuable, his land not valuable, which is, so which, that's another issue. But in none of these discussions, Gary, none of these discussions address the fact that we have seen a massive increase by act of government and by local government in the cost of building the house. The actual cost to the builder of building the house because of energy regulations and um, structural regulations, finish rate, all the other, all of the costs relative to the actual building the house, there have been really, really substantial increases in that. And nobody, every, they're talking about the, the land and windfall taxes and CPOs and uh, using uh, uh, all this uh, hoarding, land hoarding. If I own something, if I own a piece of property, which is the same as any other piece of property, how the heck, and I decide I want to keep it because I think it's going to increase in value. How is that? That is now hoarding. This is the language of the Soviet and of, of 1984. It's not the language of fuck. But none of them ever talk about the fact that we need to look at how the state can reduce the actual cost of building those and the state could the state could but it would involve them saying well we are willing to accept that there you know you can build at a lower level than this and they would say oh but you can't you have to let you they have created incredibly high levels of spec and standard here remember you're talking we were talking before about we were scoring at one stage a hundred percent in international rankings on our energy efficiency on certain types of houses. And they then passed regulations to increase it. Yeah, I remember because it was estimated those regulations would, I want to say 20,000, but it may have only been 10,000 to the cost of building a new house. And then at the same time that week, they were coming out and talking about the unaffordability of housing. And you just have to sort of go, you just increased the cost of building a house by 10 to 20,000. Do you not see how these things may be connected why are house prices so high? Why do we keep making it more expensive to build a house? And, and just to put a context on that, if you say a 20,000 increase in the cost of the build, right? And then when you sell the house as a part of the percentage of the, the, the stamp duty, and then you put onto that a 15%, that 20,000 turns into whatever it turns into, but it's more than 20,000. Like the fifteen percent, a fifteen percent markup on it, so twenty thousand. That's thirty. That brings it twenty three thousand. Stamp you. You're now suddenly twenty five. You know, and if you do that to every part of the house build, you put that to the to the slates and to the blocks and to the block, every. You end up with the situation we had and we've talked about before that until around three years ago, if you built a new house in Dublin, the cost to the builder was greater than the prices that were being that second hand houses were being sold at. It was not a mystery why people weren't building houses in Dublin area. You couldn't make money doing it. I think my favourite thing on Twitter is Ronan Lyons. For those who don't know, Ronan Lyons is an economist at, at Trinity. He specialises in um, in the building. He's, he's well worth following. He's also, I think, Daft's, Daft.ie's chief economist. But he, him turning up on other academics twitter pages when they're saying things like supply has no impact at all on the price of housing and he just turns up and he's like but how could that be true yeah, how could it possibly be true i saw him and former councillor keith redmond arguing with uh orla hegarty i think is a professor of um architecture and she's making the point that no one has ever been able to explain how if you build more houses prices will go down 
And I think Keith Redmond's answer was just supply, full stop, and, full stop, demand, full stop. <laughs> but you're like, that's not a difficult answer to question. If you've never talked to anyone who can give you an answer, you haven't been talking to people who know anything about it. Only a really, really clever person could be that stupid. Uh, there are like there are interesting points you can make there. Like you can say, well, there's it's not a linear relationship because when prices go to certain levels or where certain things happen, you're going to see increased investment, and therefore you may see behavior that is not you know a straight one to one drop. But those are, I think, in general fringe cases. The general point is well studied and well understood that as supply increases relative to demand which I think is the part most people are, are missing out on. If demand is fixed, but supply increases, costs will fall. Now, the other thing there is then you say, oh, well, obviously there's a, there's a, there's a floor to where prices can go because there's construction costs and there's financing costs, there's things like that. There's, there's the general production costs of it. And they say, yeah, that's true. But then if the point is that the floor is too high, well, then we can look and reducing those costs by looking at exactly what those costs consist of. And that's something the government is absolutely well-placed to do. So we don't do that either. They could do that with a pen. I mean, it, there are all sorts of complicated issues around uh, housing that they've been looking at. This will be one of the simplest things to do, will be simple, because the government has it within its capacity with a pen to reduce the cost to the builder of building the house. Now, one of the problems... I think that would have been good a few years ago. What effect it has now depends. The demand is now so pent up that in the short term, I'm not sure it would have a massive effect initially. But it would have. A, I mean, in the medium term, I think it would have because when you get when when the, when supply is static and the supply will be for a while lower. But you know what, Gary? The speed at which we ramped up. Our capacity to build houses in the 2000s was remarkable. Now, it didn't went well, but it does show that you can do it. So anyway, I think we will we will leave it at that, Michael. We will be back, I'd say, in about a week and a half, maybe something longer. like this. Uh, I suppose until we're back, that uh, I hope you enjoy the silence. Uh, Depeche Mode quote, very good. I know, second time I've used it on the show. <laughs> well, enjoy yourselves. <laughs>